door. Okay, it started. All right, huge class today, huge class. And we're sorry, we started a minute late because I got sidetracked with a side issue. So there we go. Um, let's see here. We're going to go ahead and read Psalm 119, verse 49. Zayin. Did I say it correctly? Zayin. Zayin. Matic, like a pickaxe. Food, cut, nourish. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me with restraint, without restraint. But I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, I remember your name, O Lord, mm -hmm. and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Woohoo! Heavenly Father. It is so, so good to be in your presence right now, and we always are. But it's good to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ and to share in your word. And we certainly thank you for the chance to get into your word. We thank you for those that are out there online that are with us right now, or maybe somebody who will watch on YouTube, and that possibly they'll be blessed by something in this study tonight. And we would pray that, once again, we would handle your word properly. We would... Uh, uh, be faithful and obedient to it and not deviate from it, not add to it or subtract from it in any way. And Lord, uh, we have a sister out in Australia, our sister Lisa, who is uh, facing troubles this week and she's asked for specific prayers. And so we want to lift her up. And of course, we have all of the other people that have uh, been on our hearts and minds over the past few weeks that we're still curious about. Paul, I haven't heard from him this week, but uh, I, I know that he's been struggling and we have Lots of other people out there, Lord, with their physical problems. we got a couple that are going to find out some information on uh, Friday, including Tom and including Don, who is uh, one of our members. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can come to you about these things. And for anybody else that's struggling out there, that we can lift them up to you. We do so. We ask that you be with them and help them through their troubles. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, let's see. We have uh, Romans 6, verse 3 is where we're starting today. And um, we'll do, let me, let me really quickly, before you read that, let me uh, see. I think we're going to do just a couple of verses, and then we're going to talk about baptism for the rest of the class probably, or maybe not the rest of the class, but it, it, we wanna, it's an issue that we need to go through once in a while. We went through it several times in Acts. And uh, let's see here, 6, 3, 6, 4. And um, yeah, we'll read 6, 3, and 4. Three first, and we'll go through it, and then we'll do four, and then we'll stop, and we'll talk about baptism for a while. Should I start at the top of the paragraph? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Just start at 6-1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay. Baptized into his death. So he's talking about baptism. All right, and it's something that people generally get wrong. It's, it's, there are a million views on baptism, and uh, which includes, you've got water baptism, you've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've got um, different views on water baptism, from sprinkling of babies all the way up to full immersion of adults and everything possible in between. Which is correct? Why? How do we know? Um, if you use the book of Acts to determine baptism, you're probably going to get it wrong. Um, you're certainly going to get it wrong. Anyway, um, 
we'll go ahead. Six three. The subject of baptism is long, and it is complicated, and more often than not, misunderstood. These are my notes from before. Uh, some denominations claim that water baptism is required in order to be saved. We all know somebody that's in Church of Christ, and that's what they teach. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Um, we'll talk about that here on in when we go through baptism on the board. But um, some denominations perform infant baptism and so on. What is speaking of what is being spoken of here is not concerning water baptism. It says here, or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay? Not speaking of water baptism at all. Paul begins this verse with, or do you not know? In using this term, he is expanding on the previous idea, which is that we have died to sin. Okay, we have died to sin. He says, or do you not know? So he's tying the two together. Therefore, what Paul is speaking of has nothing to do with an external right. Nothing. All right. When we receive Jesus by faith, we die to sin. That's what happens. Why is that? Because Jesus died on the cross in fulfillment of the law. If we move to Christ Jesus, we die with him to sin because sin is revealed through the law, right. right? Without law, there is no sin. Sin cannot be imputed where there is no law. So when he died to the law, we are in Christ. We died to sin through him. All right, that's what he's talking about there. Um, uh, let's see here. Therefore, what Paul is speaking of has nothing to do with an extra, external right. When we receive Jesus by faith, we die to sin. At this moment, the moment that we die to sin, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which I'll read you again. Just, you know, we, we could quote it, but we'll, we'll be professional and read it exactly and directly from the Bible. You believe in Jesus Christ, you receive him, you die to sin. The Holy Spirit cannot have fellowship with somebody who is sin-filled, okay? That's why when you're being filled with the Spirit, we've talked about that. It's a passive thing, and you're getting rid of the, the things in your life, and you're allowing the Lord to come in and fill you. You already have all the Spirit you're ever going to get, but he can get more of you. It says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him, meaning Jesus, in him who you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's no other way to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I do not believe in dreams and visions which say, go call on Jesus. All right? The word of God is how we we hear the, the message and we believe the word. Then we trust in it. It says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, once you believed, all right, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Once you believe, you're sealed. You believe, you receive. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, guarantee. If you believed and you received and then you could lose your salvation, the guarantee was not a good guarantee. As a matter of fact, it wasn't a guarantee. It completely nullifies the meaning of the word if you say you can lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. That's it. Okay. Um, if you come to another conclusion, such as a verse from Hebrews, you're taking that verse out of context. There are a few verses that seem to uh, work against that. They don't. I Trust me on that. And we're, We'll get to Hebrews in a very short amount of time. But for right now, we're in Romans and we're referring to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You've trusted in Christ, you've died to sin, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a promise, it's a guarantee. All right, when he, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, a change takes place. We die to sin and thus are baptized into Christ Jesus. 
we were, as Paul notes, baptized into his death, all right? This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a one-time for all-time occurrence. You're baptized into the Holy Spirit one time. It is not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. You you are, uh, you know, uh, receive Christ, and then you can later be baptized in the Holy Spirit and start t speaking in tongues or something. That's what charismatics speak. That is absolutely incorrect, and they get that from John, where John Jesus came and breathed on the apostles, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts, they received the Holy Spirit again, according to charismatics. That is not correct. That was a misevaluation of what Jesus was doing in the book of Acts when he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He was giving them an example of what it would be like when they received the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an actual reception of the Spirit. He was giving them a, a, a promise that it's coming, it's coming on Pentecost, and when it comes, it will be like this. It'll be a wind coming at you. Anyway, that's more involved in it than that, but that's just a quick snapshot of that. All right, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a repeatable event. You are uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit. You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit one time. Being filled is repeatable. As you yield to the Spirit, the Spirit fills you. Okay, that's why Paul can say, be filled with the Spirit. And then later on, you get in a bad mood and you go do something stupid, you need to be filled with the Spirit again. It's a repeatable event, whereas baptism of the Spirit and sealing of the Spirit is a one-time-for-all-time thing. Two different things, okay, entirely, all right? The uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit is the regeneration of the spiritually dead soul to eternal life, and it happens only once. That is what's going on there. We'll talk about that on the board here in a couple minutes, just so you can see it. All right. Paul indicates this elsewhere, such as in Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So we'll return there really quick. Galatians, Corinthians, Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, For you are all sons of God through works. No, oh. through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith. You're a son of God by faith, okay? For as many as you as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Once again, he's speaking of a spiritual thing going on there. Water baptism is simply an external sign of the internal change which has happened in you. It is a, a, a um, what do you call it, a, a spiritual thing which he is referring to there, okay? Putting on Christ is to be imputed with his righteousness. When God looks at us, they, he sees his righteousness covering us. He doesn't see us at all. If he saw us, then he wouldn't have any fellowship with us. But we are covered with Christ, and therefore it is an external thing that God is seeing. He is seeing Christ instead of us. All right, putting on Christ is to be imputed with his righteousness. We've talked about the difference. Uh, we've talked about the difference between imputation and impartation. And when we receive Christ, we are imputed his righteousness. We don't become righteous in the sense that we are without fault, we become righteous in the sense that we receive his righteousness as a covering. It, it ought to be very apparent to anybody. That's right. We are imputed, not imparted at this time. Okay. We are now covered or clothed in Christ. When God looks at us, he no longer sees our sins, but instead he sees Christ's righteousness. In Galatians, Paul ties his faith in Christ Jesus directly with being baptized into Christ. Faith baptized into Christ. He's tying the two together as one. They are one single act. And Paul further defines this new relationship in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where he says, for by one spirit, 
all were baptized into one body. There's not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's none of that nonsense that charismatics speak of. None of it. It is a misinterpretation of what is being said in the book of John and then in the book of Acts, both of which are, both of which are descriptive. Jesus was speaking to the disciples that he was standing with. He wasn't speaking to us when he said that to the apostles and when he breathed on them. In Acts chapter 2, he was speaking to the Jews of Israel under the law, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes. Don't want to get too far ahead, but they are descriptive passages. They are not prescriptive. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. It comes upon faith. It is a one-time for all-time event. This is the glory of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. What was dead is made alive by a mere act of faith. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5, we are shown that this was actually pictured in Israel's exodus through the Red Sea. It's quite evident that water baptism is not at all involved in the process. Let me read you that, seeing so I quoted it. 1 Corinthians 10. Um, Carol is in Israel, by the way. She's, uh, yeah, she'll be gone for a month or so. She's in Israel, so. Yeah, must be fun. Well, we're sitting here in Sarasota sweating. She's over there, probably sweating too. It's pretty hot. But, okay, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 10, verses, verse 1 through 5, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were, he's speaking of his fathers, the fathers of uh, the faith, the people of Israel that were uh, at the Exodus. He says, um, they were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They didn't get water baptism out there. They were baptized in the cloud and the sea, a spiritual baptism. All right, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Okay, so it's a spiritual thing that he's speaking about. He's saying that they were baptized, didn't profit them. We are baptized into the new covenant in Christ, and it is 100% profitable. Anyway, um, uh, it is evident there that water baptism is not what's involved in the process. The faith is exercised, the righteousness is granted, the spirit is given, and then, only then, is the sign received, that of water baptism, okay? The sign comes afterward, it doesn't come before, it's not a part of it, it has nothing to do with salvation. Water baptism is simply obedience to the Lord's command, all right? He gave us two ordinances, the first being the Lord's Supper, the second being baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an outward demonstration of the inward change which has occurred all right if you have not been if you're watching online you've never been water baptized have somebody do it you're making an outward public profession of your faith okay it's just showing obedience to the lord it's like taking the lord's supper he says do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me well that's one of the things that we try to do is because it's remembering his act um the faith is exercised the righteousness is granted the spirit is given and then the sign is received, water baptism. This is the exact same pattern as what occurred with Abraham, right? Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, verse 6, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The relationship was restored, and only then, and many years later, by the way, did he receive the sign of circumcision. That's Genesis chapter 17. This process is clear, it's concise, and it negates the validity of infant baptism. 
There is nothing valid in infant baptism at all. If you go back and watch the Genesis um, 17 uh, sermons that I did out at the beach, you'll see very clearly I go through the entire process of why infant baptism is not right. I tied in with Abraham. People say, well, this is the same thing that uh, the Jews did under the law. They circumcised when they were children. And see, we're just doing the same thing with water baptism. They missed the entire point. They've missed the entire point of what circumcision was intended to do. All right. It has nothing to do with water baptism. Water baptism does what? I'm, for, for children, infant baptism. I'm sorry. What does that do? Because they, their free will is not exercised. Right. But what does it do to the person? If you, It gives them false hope. False hope. That's all it does. Infant baptism gives false hope. It tells people that they are now a part of the covenant people and they're saved through this. It has nothing to do with that. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 sets aside parameters for children that are covered under the believing parent, okay? Water baptism has nothing to do with that, absolutely nothing. If you think that your child is saved through water baptism or that you Catholics go through their whole life saying, well, I was baptized in the church, they believe they're saved because of that. False hope, that's all that is, all right? Um, it's an unscriptural right, talking about um, uh, infant baptism, in which no way replaces circumcision, as is claimed by those who practice it. it. has nothing to do with it. Coming to Christ is an individual act of faith, as he noted. Only after this act is demonstrated does water baptism serve any purpose at all. It is an outward demonstration of the inward change. Said that already, just repeating myself. Water baptism has nothing to do with salvation. All right? Church of Christ is completely wrong on that. We'll go through that in a few minutes. Um, instead, it has to do with Obedience. Obedience, thank you. When a person is saved, they then make a public demonstration of their new life. They go to the water just as Jesus went to the cross. They are fully submerged. And by the way, the Greek word for baptism is baptizo. Um, yeah, what it means is to be underwater completely. When a ship sinks, it is baptized, okay? Baptism cannot mean... The reason why they uh, decided to use the word baptism when they, it, it, in other words, it's a Greek word, right? All they did was transliterate it into the English when they did the English translations. Why did they do that? Can anybody think of why they would do that? Because they didn't want to get engaged into the debate. The one church says this, another church says this, and it was a debate that they did not want to enter into. So instead of saying, immerse somebody, which is what baptism means, they just simply transliterated it, baptism, and they left it at that. That is why they did that. They did not want to get into a debate, a theological debate with this king or that king or, you know, because it was all politics. Mm -hmm. King James Version 1611 was under King James, right? You've got the Geneva Bible was sanctioned by this, this group or this group. If you go to this country, all of a sudden they believe in water baptism. They don't believe. It was a nightmare and they stayed away from it by simply transliterating the word directly from Greek and just letting people decide on their own what does that mean because they're not going to get into this big debate with it but if they were to have faithfully translated that word but for what it means into English they would have simply said immersion okay that's what they would have done but anyway are you sprinkled into the Holy Spirit absolutely not you were filled with the Spirit you were sealed with the Spirit you are covered in Christ's righteousness it is a complete dunking if you want to say anyway um where was i um 
uh, it's a public demonstration. They go to the water just as Jesus went to the cross. They are fully submerged. Okay, it's a picture of going into the grave just as Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. He wasn't sprinkled in the tomb. He was put in the tomb and they shut the thing up. He was submerged, you could say. All right. And finally, the person is raised out of the water just as a picture of being raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is. It's an outward profession of the inward change which you went through when you received Christ and you went to the cross with him and you went into the grave with him and you were raised to newness of life with him. That is what baptism signifies. This is the intent and this is the purpose of water baptism. Okay, life application. If you have received Jesus, you are saved. That's it. You don't need to have anybody tell you anything beyond that. All right, you want proper doctrine? Go to Bible studies. Read your word, study it, think about it, okay? But if you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, you are saved. One time for all time, all right? I know people have a problem with that. Well, that person isn't living for the Lord. Hey, that's that person's problem. He's going to have to face the Lord, and he's going to get rewards and losses for his life lived after his salvation. Christ is not going to take back what he is sealed with a guarantee, okay? One of two things will be the result of such an action. One is that God made a mistake, and the second is that God didn't keep his guarantee. He will never break his promise, even when we do. He is faithful when we are faithless. Hence, we can look at Israel today, back in the land of Israel, even though they were completely and still are unfaithful to the Lord God, completely unfaithful to him, he still has brought them back because of his promise to them. Faithful, faithless Israel is saved by faithful God. Okay, that's all there is to it. He is faithful to his covenant promises. All right, um, water baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. However, Jesus did give two ordinances to his followers. As I said earlier, water baptism and the Lord's Supper in obedience to his directives. Don't you think it's time to be properly baptized as an open profession to your inward change? All right, now we'll do 6-4 and then we'll talk about baptism just because it's the right time to do it, and it's good to be refreshed up on it. So go ahead, 6-4. Four. four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. New life. Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole point of coming to Christ. That's the whole point of him taking away our sin nature and giving us Christ's righteousness is so we can live a new life, not so we can be stuck in the doldrums that we've been in for the past however many years. Okay, let's see here. Therefore, because of what was stated in 6, 1 through 3, we come to the following conclusion. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, who have received him, right, were buried with him through baptism into death. That's what Paul says. You're buried with him through baptism into death. Again, and as previously noted, this is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nothing to do with water baptism. The total immersion of the old man into Christ's death, being completely covered by his righteousness and thus resulting in us being in Christ. Paul uses that term a billion times in his epistles. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because we are in Christ. Thank you. Right? All right. Mom's not here yet. I assume she's not coming tonight. Um, let's see here. So uh, let's see here. The sealing of the Spirit is, is the baptism of the Spirit. Don't believe charismatics when they say that you go through a second baptism of the Spirit and you start, you must speak in tongues or have an outward demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit. 
incorrect. Paul never addresses that issue ever. Paul is doctrine for the church age, not the book of Acts. The book of Acts is showing us what happened as God was leading from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome, the transition from Peter to Paul, on and on and on. Acts is a transitional book to show us that we are going into a new dispensation, the church age, the Gentile-led church age, the dispensation of Christ. Okay, Do not use the book of Acts as prescriptive or you will have faulty theology, and you're going to see that in a few minutes. Okay, um, in acknowledgement, oh, wait, let me read a little bit more of this. The sealing of the Spirit is the baptism of the Spirit. It is a one-time act which moves us from Adam to Christ. Deal done. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. Once again, eternal salvation. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're in Adam. If you're in Adam, you're not saved. If you're in Christ, you're saved. It's done. In acknowledgement of this act, moving from Adam to Christ, from sin to sinlessness to, and that doesn't mean literally sinlessness, positionally sinless in God's eyes. When you make this move from one to the other, then you have uh, uh, been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in acknowledgement of this act, we are expected to follow through this inward change with an outward demonstration of that change. As I said before, full immersion baptism. That is what the Bible teaches, okay? How can we be certain that water baptism isn't specifically being spoken of here and that it is therefore some type of a requirement for salvation? How can we know that? Verses such as Acts 2.38, which we'll talk about on the board, and Mark 16, verse 16, seem to indicate that water baptism is a requirement for salvation. Let me read you first Acts 2.38. All right, it says there in Acts 2, um, Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Seems to imply that if they're baptized, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do we know that it's not speaking of that? We'll get to it in a minute. Okay, um, then uh, Acts 16, or I'm sorry, uh, Mark 16, 16. I'll probably, let me see, am I going to read that in this verse? If not, then I'll uh, I'll read it when we get to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it in a second. Um we got act. Oh, um, they seem to indicate that baptism is a requirement for uh, salvation, and uh, it's a very lengthy explanation. We will go through it. I'm going to give you a short summary of the two first. Okay, in Acts two thirty eight, which I just read you, the first thing to notice that this is Peter speaking to who? Jews. Speaking to the Jews of what country? Thessalonia, Israel. Israel. Oh, he's speaking to the Jews of Israel. Therefore, Peter instructs them to repent. Repent of Jews from all around. Yes, but I, I understand. But they're of Israel. They're they're Jews of Israel. It doesn't matter where in the world they are. They are Jews of Israel. Okay. Tells them to repent of their mindset. Their mindset. Okay. Repent means to change your mind. That's the word metanoia means. Change your mind. It doesn't mean stop doing this and stop doing it. You have to stop drinking before you can be saved. Right. That's putting the cart before the horse. Nobody goes to the doctor and says, before I go to the doctor, I've got to get myself well. Nobody does that. They say, I'm going to the doctor because I'm really sick and I need him to fix me up, all right? Anybody that tells you you have to repent of your sins before you're saved has got the horse before the cart, if you know who I'm speaking yes. about. He does it, Ray Comfort. And he's a wonderful guy, he's got great approach, but he puts the horse before the cart and it causes as much damage as it does anything else. Because somebody that wants to come to Christ, if they think I've got to change my life and be better before I come to Christ, they will never, never come to Christ 
It will never happen because they'll be working their way to heaven forever, trying to be better in order to merit Christ. I think and it it's also not going to happen. A lot of people away. It, that's right. It chases people away. Repent means change your mind. It doesn't mean anything about changing your 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 deeds. He will help you grow. I guarantee you that every single person that is well, we only got five people here today, including me. But one, two, three, four, uh, five plus me. Um, but uh, uh, every person here, every person online, and if anybody watches the YouTube later, they will all be at a different state of maturity. Some will be still involved in sins that they were in 15 years ago. Some of them will have put all of that behind and they'll be making little trips here and there along the way, but they're they're progressing well, right? And in between is every other possible permutation of where somebody is in Christ. Everybody's on their own level. And if anybody said to me all those years ago, you need to make sure that you get yourself right before you come to Christ, I still wouldn't have come to Christ. It still wouldn't have happened because I went to him to be healed, not to heal myself and then get to him. All right. Um, so uh, he's speaking to Israel under the law. He's asking them to repent. The context will show us this when we look at it on the board because of their rejection of him. They rejected Christ, right? Peter expected them to be baptized before they would re receive the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles were not even a consideration at this point. Peter had no idea, not this big of an idea, that there would ever be a Gentile that would come to Christ without first converting to Judaism. That's evidenced by what we'll talk about on the board. Okay, the Gentiles weren't considered comparing the order of the events in Acts 2 with the events in Acts 8 and Acts 10, which we will do on the board becomes apparent that Acts 2 was a unique requirement and a one-time event for the people of Israel. If you are using Acts 2 for your baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you're using Acts 2 for speaking in tongues, if you're using Acts 2 for your water baptism in requirement for salvation, or any other, any other precept that you are using Acts 2 for, you are using it wrong. It is a descriptive verse to, for us to learn from, and that is it. There is not one prescriptive word in Acts 2 for us today. Not one. Okay? It was unique requirement and a one-time event for the people of Israel. It describes what occurred at Pentecost. One Pentecost. There are not more Pentecosts. Although we celebrate Pentecost, it is fulfilled in Christ. All right? And what was expected of the Israelites, it does not prescribe the norm. Second is Mark 16, 16, which says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, right? Everybody knows that. He who believes and baptized will be saved. Sounds like he got to be baptized in order to be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. What is missing from the second clause? Baptism. Okay, on the surface and without taking into careful consideration, this verse may appear to indicate one must be baptized in order to be saved, which it is true, but it's not speaking of water baptism. This is not the case. Jesus is tying belief into baptism. He who believes is baptized and will be saved. However, baptism is not mentioned in connection with condemnation. He who does not believe will be condemned. Therefore, belief and baptism occur simultaneously. It is speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not water baptism. This simply confirms what John spoke prior to Jesus' earthly mission or ministry, right at the beginning of it, right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke 3.16, he was speaking to the people of Israel. What did he say? Let me read it to you just so you don't, I don't confuse you. Luke, yeah, 3 verse 6, whoops, I just had it right there. Verse 3 verse 16, and it says, um, 
John. Go ahead. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. You sandal strap, I am not worthy to loose. I will baptize. He. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Does it say anything about Jesus baptizing people in water? No. No, it does elsewhere. He did baptize them, but it wasn't him, but his disciples that it says actually it wasn't him that baptized, but his disciples. So even then, you can't say that Jesus baptized people in the water. He baptized people with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. That's right. The power of God. Right? Okay. So he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay. So in which fire is purification, fire is judgment. It, it, fire has several things going on in it in the Bible. But anyway, so uh, you can see that um, the baptism which comes by faith in Christ, even from Mark 16, 16, is this baptism referred to by John and which is, again, referred to by Jesus, being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It has nothing, nothing to do with water baptism. I'll do that again just so you can see it up here. Um, Christ coming out of the grave was, um, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped the whole paragraph. This then is the water baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it is where we are buried with him, as Paul says, through baptism into death. We have died to sin, and we have been born again by the Spirit of God, John 3, 16. Paul then continues by stating that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Does it say anything like if we don't walk in newness of life, we're going to be recondemned? Right. Does it say it doesn't? He says you should do this thing. Why? Because it's something that we should do. All right. That's why we go to Bible studies. That's why we talk to the Lord when we're down. That's why we go to church and why we learn theology is because our relationship with God is conditional on our coming to God and having a relationship. He's already put out his hands and said, I want the relationship. I want it. I've given you my word. I've given you my son. I've given you all of these things, these avenues for you to pursue me. Now the onus is up to you. But there is a problem, isn't there? Theology is hard work, right? right. It doesn't come easily. No. Understanding the Bible is hard work. It is so much easier to go to a church and be told by your pastor that if you just keep trying speaking in tongues, you will speak in tongues, oh. and they... They have people completely deluded by these crazy sounds they make, which are, once again, totally, uh, I'll tell you about tongues, is that the Bible says that if you speak in tongues, no more than three, and there must be a translator. So any congregation where more than three people speak in tongues cannot be of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit gave us this word. It's either this word is true or that congregation is true. And if there's not a translator, then it's not of the Holy Spirit, Right. You go into these churches and everybody's blabbering around in their, their seats and the pastor's up there blabbering around and theology is hard work. They'd rather just do that and try to be impressive before the people instead of being studious before God, all right? And anyway, tongues are never, 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 never anything but a known language, okay? Tongues is the same word as language. The problem with people with tongues today is because it was translated as tongues by the older versions and it's just been carried through. It's like the word baptism. Mm -hmm. People think, well, it must be something special. It's a known language. What's the Greek um, gl Glossalia, I believe. Yeah, anyway. Um, uh, but yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's just simply a known language. And then people say, well, what about the tongues of men and angels, right? From, uh, what is it? 1 Corinthians 13, I think. How did angels speak? They spoke with authority. They spoke on behalf of God, right? 
It's a tongue of men and angels means tongue of men is maybe one that uh, uh, speaks one way, but an angel will always speak firmly under authority and the word of God. Okay, so even the tongue of men and angels has nothing to do with gobbledy gook sounds. All languages are known languages. Yes. Even the times that I've had experience with a church that did that, you know, my raising that question was always met with, it's a heavenly language. Yeah, exactly. That my father understands, and that's all I need. That's right. That, that's uh, that. All that is doing is punting it back to God and that's saying we don't have to think. We're just that. That's exactly. It's a heavenly language. I have Stand behind a safe fence. That's right. Like that. Yeah, it, it just it takes the only all of. They can do. That's right. It takes all of everything off of you. You're safe, and now the onus is on you to prove them wrong. Which you know, unless which, yeah. Which means they still skirted around. The, what's described in the Bible to qualify. That's that's they exactly right. Around it, yep. So they're going out of their way to reject. That's exactly that. right. That's and once again, if you have more than three people speaking in a tongue during a congregation, or if you don't have a translator of it, then it is not of the Holy Spirit uh, because I, this. I've never been to one of those. Well, don't go. Well, I'm just saying. But are they all talking? I mean, well, it depends on which congregation you go to. Sometimes it's just the guy up in the pulpit that's just blabbering. Can't understand it. No, they're just going shop, shoop, shop, shoop, blop, bloop. They, they just make stupid sounds. That's all they're doing. But like for me, when I entered the doors of that particular church, I wasn't strong enough to recognize right. the danger of it. That's right. And it almost sucked me in, especially when people wanted to lay hands on you oh yeah trying to push you down sure sure and this really? in the spirit yeah. stuff like you know every time i went to the service it would be the same people flopping around on the floor like yep. a flounder yep seriously uh, it was it, yeah no it, it it don't ever go you'd just no, be I disappointed just, just, it, know, it's I've, it's it, shallow it, theology it it's a, not theology it has nothing to do but, with but that they, they bring in so many other circus distractions one person's Five people are doing flagging with yeah. the flags waving. Another one's got the tambourine. Three others are flopping on the floor. Yeah. Really? Uh, and yeah. then others are going around putting blankets on people. It's and, just, it's oh, not, yeah. yeah let's, put little blankets yeah. on them while they're on the floor. And it's yeah. just crazy. All right. Well, we, we wow. it, it, it's just not something that we need to participate no. in because no. it's, it has nothing to do with being baptized it sounds in the like spirit. it's pretty crazy. Uh, it is. It's nuts. Anyway, um, <laughs> we'll go on here. It says, um, uh, let me just read that paragraph again. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is where we are buried with him through baptism into his death. We have died to sin and been born again by the Spirit of God. Paul then continues by stating that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Okay, that's where I left off. Just as we died to sin through Christ, we are also raised from the dead in Christ. This is being born again. Christ's coming out of the grave was by the glory of the Father, Paul says. Because we are united with him in this marvelous new way, we should also walk in newness of life. The ultimate goal of our salvation is not the prospect of walking on streets of gold for all eternity. It has nothing to do with it. The ultimate goal is to bring glory to God. God's glory is the reason why Christ came. It is the reason why he died, and it is the reason why he was raised again. The actions were done for us so that we could bring his Father glory. That is the purpose of our salvation. That's the purpose of everything God is doing, is for us to glorify him. Life application will go to the board. We have died to sin. We have been raised to newness of life through Jesus. Because this is a fact, let us also walk in that newness of life, mortifying the flesh and living in holiness in the presence of our God. Okay? So we'll go up here. We got... Uh, 
45 minutes, and I think we can do this in probably 20, but we'll see. Um, we have, go back one more time, and we'll go to uh, Mark 16, 16, and I'm going to read it just so you can see that again on the board. I've already explained it once, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so if I forget something, I'm sorry, but uh, Mark 16, 16 says, he who believes, you believe and are baptized and B and B bread and breakfast breakfast okay um, you believe and are baptized you will that equals salvation right believe and be baptized equals salvation but he who does not believe not believing will be condemned okay so baptism is conditional based on belief you believe and you are baptized then you will be saved plus mark okay but here if you don't believe the only thing that happens if you don't believe is you are condemned so baptism cannot have anything to do with condemnation not being baptized there's nothing to do with it but belief results in the baptism of the Holy Spirit okay that is what John was speaking about that is what Jesus confirmed and that's what the book of Acts is going to show us belief here and baptized so baptism is conditional on belief you will be saved no belief don't worry about baptism it doesn't happen anyway and you are condemned that is it and guess what it says in john three eighteen. go ahead burke if you don't believe okay he that be, uh, believes is not condemned he believes not is, is uh, condemned already it's exactly what it says in, in mark right here he who believes in jesus is not condemned he's saved okay which implies that he was baptized right because if you believe and are baptized you'll be saved so jesus says that he who believes is say it again he that believes is not condemned he who believes is not condemned in other words he's saved he who does not believe is condemned is condemned already it's already done that's why we don't need to worry about the equation up there you're already condemned you're on the highway to heck all right that's just how that works. So that resolves Mark 16, 16. We don't need to go any further with it. If you just think it through, then it comes out clear and evident. Baptism, according to Mark 16, 16, cannot be equated to water baptism. It is not a text that if somebody tells you, you have to be baptized, see, it says there, just show them what, just think it through, remember what you were taught, and then show them that. It has nothing to do with water baptism. The next place we're going to go to is to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to go through this long thing all over Acts, and uh, I'm going to, like I say, I'm not going to get too deep because we'll be here for four hours, but we'll just really quickly go through it. Acts chapter 2, it says on the day of Pentecost, right? It's the day of Pentecost. It's in Israel. It has nothing to do with us. The Gentiles were not even considered at this point. They were not considered. Then Peter tells all the things that are going on. Um, they, they see the people speaking all in their own languages, right? And then they, they take these verses from Joel, which people apply to themselves all the time now, don't they? You hear that uh, in the latter days, what does it say? And then it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy your young. Who was Joel speaking to? He was speaking to Israel. That's right. He wasn't speaking to the Gentiles. That is a verse for the Jews. It was fulfilled at, pa at uh, Pentecost by the Jews. And guess what? It has a future fulfillment in Israel of the end times, but it has nothing to do with the church. If you were applying the quote from Joel in Acts chapter 2 to your theology, you have made an error. 
It is a descriptive verse that is being spoken first to Israel in the Old Covenant, and now it's being spoken to the people of Israel in the New. It's never cited to the, the Gentiles, okay? It's in Acts showing us the transition from Israel to the Gentiles, from Peter to Paul, from the law to grace. It's showing us the whole transition. The book of Acts is this marvelous book, which we did not record. I'm sorry about it, but if you followed through with that, you would be you, you would understand exactly what we're talking about. This is having his nose on your face, what's going on. But anyway, Joel, he does that. Then he says, man of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God to miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, Jews require a sign. Greeks look after wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified. The signs were for Israel. Okay, um, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should uh, be, uh, that he should be held by it. Okay, then he speaks of David once again, uh, or he cites David. David speaking of Christ, you won't leave your holy one in the the grave. You won't see corruption. And then he goes on to say, well, gee whiz, you know, David's in his grave right now. Couldn't have been speaking of him. Right. Okay. And then he's yeah, right here, verse twenty nine. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you about the patriarch David, who wrote that passage that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is here with us to this day he's corrupted it couldn't be speaking of him it's got to be speaking of christ then he explains that and then he gets down to uh we'll just start at um verse 36 therefore let all of the gentiles know assured oh let all of israel know assuredly <laughs> that god has made this jesus whom you crucified both lord and christ not a Gentile there. If they were, they were in the court of the Gentiles, and he wasn't speaking to them. He was speaking to Israel, who had crucified their Messiah. They had the oracles of God. They had all of the information they needed to make the right decision about the coming Messiah, and they missed it. And so he's speaking to them. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Let's put it down here. Peter gives them the answer. So Peter is the one that's speaking. Okay, and he says, Peter is speaking to Israel, who had crucified their Messiah. This is Acts chapter 2. Okay, and um, Peter is speaking to Israel. Acts 38, he says to them, repent. Yeah. Israel must repent. Remember, repentance does not mean anything more than change your mind. Metanoia. Okay, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you repent and bread and, back for bed and breakfast and be baptized. Okay, um, uh, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, we'll just say be baptized, and baptized for the remission of your sins. Remission, R-E-M-I-S-S-I-O-N of your sins, remission of your sins. Peter says to, to Israel, you must repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Okay. And you, after you do that, if you do this, then, then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then you get the Spirit. Okay. That is the order that Peter speaks of. It has nothing, nothing to do with the Gentiles, nothing. It is Peter speaking to Israel, repent and be baptized for the remission of the sins, 
and then you will get the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and your children and all to who are far off, but he's not speaking about the uh, process to them. Anybody who is afar off, as many as call on the, uh, the, our, uh, the, Lord, the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testifies, but he's speaking to them about these things. Okay, so... This is going to go quicker than normal because uh, let's see here. What's the next chapter where baptism is mentioned in the book of Acts? Seven. Eight. You're exactly right. <laughs> You're exactly right. Is Stephen okay. into seven? Um, what's that? Is Stephen's not to seven? Um, oh, Stephen. He, Stephen is speaking in seven. He may mention baptism. I'm talking about the process of it. But I said they both, the eunuch and him, went down into the water and came up with that in seven? Oh, um, uh, well... Uh, that one I wasn't talking about, but you're right. Let me see. Where is that? Um, uh, Burke is always right. Um, hang on. Our fathers. And, and Well, that's the one where Stephen is speaking to the people and he's stoned. Um, uh, the one that you're speaking of is um, not. Uh, uh, but that's not what I'm speaking of. I'm speaking about the process. That was just in. That was a side issue of one person. But that was. I'm trying to find that right now because you brought it up because we could insert it. It doesn't matter. Let's just go to Acts chapter 8. Because Stephen is the one that's speaking to Israel, you know, uh, when they stoned him, the first martyr. But what I'm looking for is the next incidence of baptism, which gives us information about the process of baptism. Okay. The one that you're mentioning is correct. That was, um, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, Philip, who baptized yeah. the guy, um, uh, the, that's eunuch, in the eunuch in eight as well. That's right. Yeah. He baptized the eunuch of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, that's a separate issue, and we can go through that if you want to, but it'll kind of muddy the waters. Okay. Let's just go on to the, uh, it, that, you're right, it was an eight, and what it says here, we're going to go to eight, and it, this is specifically speaking of Samaria, okay? Now, Israel is what? Comprised of what type of people? Jews, okay? The term Jew comes from Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, okay? So actually, it's all 12 tribes of Israel, but Judah became synonymous with Israel at this point. Okay, so it's Israel's the Jews. The next one is in Acts chapter 8. Okay, I'm going to run out of space because I didn't use that over there, but we'll, we'll just put it down here and it'll be a little bit messy. But Acts chapter 8 is speaking about what group of people? Samaritans. Samaritans. Okay, so we've got Israel. So we'll, we'll fill it out in a second here, but it says... Um, um, where I'm just going to read from the beginning now. There was a great persecution, okay? People were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial. Um, let's see here. Philip went down to Samaria to pe preach Christ, and that's where the Ethiopian eunuch is mentioned, okay? They baptized him. Now, verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, so this is speaking of, um, you've got the apostles, who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Okay? So Peter and John went to Samaria. Okay? Okay, so we've got Peter to Israel, Peter and John to Samaria. Okay? That's Acts chapter 8. Then it says there, um, Let's see. When they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. So at this point, when Peter and uh, John go to Samaria, there's no Holy Spirit. 
but they believed. It said right there when they, the, the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, right? So they had received the word, and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it says, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them. So Peter and John have gone there. There's no Holy Spirit, but there is, but there is faith. I know my handwriting is getting terrible. D-H-E-R-E, there is faith. So they have faith, but no Holy Spirit. Okay? And so what is it? What happens? Peter and John lay their hands, lay hands on the people who believed. That's what's implied there. On the people. All right. Had received the word of God. They laid their hands on them and they received the spirit. So they laid hands and here comes the Holy Spirit. Okay, they believed. Somebody had to come and lay their hand. Have you ever heard any church ever that any of you were in that said you need to receive the Holy Spirit by having the hands laid on you because Never. you were? No. Okay, nobody ever goes to Acts chapter 8. They do go to Acts chapter 2 because it's an exciting passage that everybody has got all this stuff and we can apply this to our theology and I can have the fire of Joel and all of this stuff and have dreams and visions and all that stuff. Well, why don't they talk about this one? You never hear anybody say this. And if they do, once again, they've taken it completely out of context, as you'll see. But it's just one of those passages that people quickly read by if they read it at all, and then they go on to something else. Okay? Can, and, I, can I ask yeah. you a question right here? Is that, okay, so start off that Israel right. had to repent right. before they received the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Right. Okay. Were these prayers by chance to them the Samaritans or Jews? Well, they're half Jews. That's okay, one but, thing I wanted to say. One half Jew... One half Gentile. Right. Okay. So we have a, a mixed breed here. So you're starting to see a pattern anyway. Right. Okay. So that's, I'm glad you said that because this is a half Jew, half Gentile. That's all Jew. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, does it say anything about repentance there? It doesn't. It doesn't. It, then it doesn't. Okay. Then it doesn't. Right. It doesn't say anything about repentance. It says you repent, you be baptized for the remission of your sins, and then you will get the Spirit. Here, they believed, and all that happened was that these guys went down, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's it. It doesn't say anything about repent. Why? Did the Samaritans crucify Jesus? Uh, no. no. They had they nothing got, to do with it. They, the Jews wouldn't even talk to him. The oracles. Huh? They no, well, they had the Samaritan Pentateuch. But they, 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 they're completely disassociated from what's going on. Okay. Completely. Nothing to do with it. They were never asked, you need to repent, because they hadn't done anything. Right? That would be like me going up to you and saying you need to repent for killing Jesus. And you say, who's Jesus? Right. right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Right? Imputing right. to me something I didn't do. Now, ultimately, our sins did put Christ on the cross, but that's not what this is speaking about. They actively rejected him. They actively crucified him. Right. We right. are just included in the equation. But th that's why this is different. These people heard the word, but they didn't get any Holy Spirit. They had to wait and have somebody put their hands on them. So now, we've got one more passage which speaks of the same issue. Ten. Thank you. Ten. Like I say, the eunuch is just, it, it's kind of a monkey wrench. It, there, there's no difficulties with it. It's just that it muddies the waters of the three groups of people, which is what this is doing. Okay. Um, ten. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. 
Is that a Jewish name? Nope. No. Okay. How do we know? He's a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. Yeah, I know. The Italian Regiment. He's a Gentile through and through. Okay. There's no way that you can say he was a proselyte. There's The Bible says nothing about that. Now, people will say, they'll come to you and say, well, he was a proselyte He because it says he prayed to God often. Well, guess what? Muslims pray to God often, too. Buddhists pray to God. They're just doing it wrong. This guy was not a proselyte because if it was, it would have said he was a proselyte, just like they do in other places in the Bible. He had nothing. He was a Gentile, might have been favorable to the Jewish people, whatever. He was not a proselyte because the Bible does not say it, and we cannot insert that into there. He is a pure-blood Gentile. The day before Peter showed up, guess what he had for dinner, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. So... He's a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. That's all it says. Mm -hmm. Okay? We got people that do that all the time that are as far from God as they could be. Mm -hmm. And once again, this is a prescriptive passage, right? Descriptive. Oh, good. I'm glad you said that. It's descriptive. <laughs> this simply describes what happened because there are devout people all over the world that will never get a vision like this. Why? Because we have this. The book is complete. We have this. This this was included in here so that we now have this in here, right? That's why he put this example in here. It's because he doesn't need to repeat it again. The Bible is given us this example, so we don't need to have it repeated in households all over the world. It won't happen, all right? It says here, let me read it to you, just so you know. Hebrews chapter 1. three. Yep, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I'm in 9. i got to get to 1. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Um... Where was it? Oh, okay. Who being the brightness of his glory. Oh, no, that's not what I wanted. Um, two. I'm just going to read from one. God, who at various times, God, who at various times, and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So it tells us that God used to speak through the prophets to the fathers. Mm -hmm. There was a mode of God speaking to the people of the world. As in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, okay? He used to speak through prophets. He no longer speaks through prophets. I'm sorry, if you were in a church where somebody says, I got a prophetic word from the Lord, I would leave that church. I would leave that church. I saw one this week, and it was somebody asked me a question about it. He sent me a, a question about somebody that made a prophecy about Donald Trump. And it was a, yeah, there's been a couple of Trump prophecies out there, but this one in particular was... A, it was one I've never seen before, and I was a bit upset at reading it. But anyway, he's making a claim, and if it doesn't come true, nobody's going to care. They're just going to go on to the next thing and whatever. But I, I told this guy, I said, I do not believe in extra-biblical revelation. I don't believe it because the Bible says that God has spoken through his son. It's done. We have the word amen. It says we live by faith and not by sight. If we have a prophetic word from the Lord, it's no longer a faith. Now, I know people disagree with me, and I have no problem with that. If people disagree with me, they can, and I'm going to disagree with them. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to belittle them. But I just do not personally, and I'm not going to ever teach against what I believe. This is what we have received. This is all sufficient, okay? If somebody disagrees with me, just disagree. That's fine. I, I, just, I, I will never change my stand on this. I know what this word says, and I know that it is sufficient. If it can convert Charlie Garrett... This book can convert anybody. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so we'll go on. Certain man in uh, Cornelius, he's in the Italian regiment. He's devout. He prays to God. He has a vision. 
And God tells him in that vision about the ninth hour of the day, which um, he observed um, uh, uh, angel saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? Okay, your alms have come up as a, uh, uh, you know, a fragrant offering to God and all this. And uh, so he has his vision at the same time of the day. Peter is in another area and he has a vision. And in the vision, he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and a sheet opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners probably a talit you know one of the things i put on when we take mm -hmm. that's probably what it was a talit is showing you know it, it's it's what the jews wore and in it are unclean animals all unclean animals four-footed animals of the earth wild beasts creeping things and birds of the air and a voice came to him said rise peter kill and eat it's the same thing that happened back in the book of ezekiel ezekiel was told to um, let me take you there. It's Ezekiel. Um, uh, he had his vision. Ezekiel four. Just really, do we have time? Yeah, we got time. Um, Ezekiel four says, um, uh, where is it? Um, okay. Then the Lord said, so the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them out. So I said, oh, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten what died of itself or what was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And then he made a concession for uh, Ezekiel in that and he allowed him to cook his food with something else. And we'll get into it. But anyway, um, Peter did the same thing. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Okay, three times he was told, this is clean. This is clean. All the way through the Bible, these were unclean animals. And we're going to go through it. Not this week, not next week, probably two weeks from, three weeks from now, we're going to go through the uh, dietary stuff in Israel. You are going to find out why those are in there. It, what an amazing passage. Wow. Anyway, all these unclean animals were selected for a reason. Okay, they were selected for a reason. And it's not what you think, probably. But um, anyway, uh, they, they, nothing is unclean in and of itself. Paul says that. Jesus says that. Anything that goes into a man cannot defile him. It's what comes out of a man. Jesus said it. So if that's true, then why did he pick these animals? Why did he pick those animals and say they're unclean to you? They're an abomination to you. You'll find out. Anyway. It has nothing, nothing to do with uh, uh, the uncleanness of the animal itself. When that thing came down, Peter was told that this is a picture of all of the people of the world. These unclean animals are a picture of the people of the world. And he's saying, I am going to cleanse them. And that, Peter makes the connection, right? When he, all of a sudden, Cornelius is having his vision. He's one of those creeping animals in the Talit. And Peter sees this thing full of creeping animals and he makes the connection. Oh, He's speaking of people. But I've had people actually say, well, that's speaking of people, but it's not speaking of food. And so we're still not allowed to eat food that is not allowed under the law. In other words, like pork and all that. And I don't know how they could come to that conclusion when, as I said a few minutes ago, what did Cornelius have for dinner the night before Peter showed up, right? Did God call him unclean? Did he say you have to go purify yourself for three days or wash your clothes and do this or you're unclean until evening or any of those things? Right. No. They were cleansed by God apart from what foods they eat. And the issue of foods is very clear there, and it's very clear in the book of Galatians. Because Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when the Jews showed up from Jerusalem, what did he do? He withdrew, withdrew himself from them, right. implying that he was eating with the Gentiles all of their unclean food. 
So it can't be the food that makes a person unclean. The laws of Israel under the law of Moses are annulled in Christ. They are done. If you're not eating pork because you think you are pleasing God, you're actually offending God because his son has already fulfilled that picture for you. If you're not eating pork because you don't like the taste of bacon, all I can say is I feel so bad for you, but that's fine. Don't eat it. But if you are not eating it because you think that it is wrong, because God has said that it's unclean, you have fallen from grace. Okay, You are attempting to merit God's favor. Uh, I, I think I said it during the, the Sundays. I may have said it last week, but um, if somebody uh, somebody emailed me and asked, well, there's a pastor that says, we observe the feasts, and we know we don't have to, but we do it anyway because we know it pleases God. And I said, how can you please God more than what Christ has done? He has completely pleased him. So to say that you are doing something to please him on top of what Christ has done is still an offense to what Christ has done. We are to rest in Christ, we are to trust in Christ, and we are to put Christ as our all in all. Not observances of the law, not feast days, not food, none of those issues, all evidenced by Cornelius here. So we'll get back to this now. Um, It says here, rise, kill, and eat. Don't call it anything which is uh, cleansed. Don't call it common, etc., etc. He's wondering about the vision. Two guys show up and they say, well, somebody uh, told us, he, uh, the guy that we, uh, Cornelius, had a vision and we asked to bring you to him. Okay, so this is happening. And then it says, um, the following day, they entered Caesarea. Okay, so this is going uh, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We've got Acts 2, we've got Acts 8, and we've got Acts 10. Okay, this is going to what group of people? Gentiles. 100% pork-filled Gentiles. That is absolutely who it is going to. It's not going to anything other than that. It's going to the Gentiles. And it says here, uh, the following day, Peter was taken by two people to the house of Cornelius. Peter to Cornelius, to the Gentiles. Cornelius. Okay? He's a Gentile. All right. And then we have, um, uh, let's see here. It says, um, where was I? Okay. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and called together his relatives and close friends. So he's got a whole group of people there. And they're excited. He's already told them, I had a vision. This guy must have something important to tell us. So he's got all these people because he's so excited about this. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up saying, "Stand, uh, stand up. I'm a man myself. Okay, he talked to him about stuff. Then he said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go into one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Did God say that to Peter? No. He didn't say man, but Peter made the connection. He understood that the animals in there were reflective of man, just as they were on the Ark of Noah. All of those animals that were being taken onto the Ark two by two were a picture of the Gentile people of the world, all the creeping and unclean people of the world, and they were carried through to a new life, okay, a new world. So he made that connection, and he said, I know that what I saw there equals to a man, not to call anyone common or unclean. Okay, he made that mental connection. Um, It says, um, therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I then asked for what reason have you sent for me? So he has now entered into a Gentile's house, which is something unclean for a Jew and something he's going to have to defend in chapter 11. He's going to repeat everything that he says here to these people. And they're going to say, oh, they're going to realize what had happened. But you can see how ingrained it was into them. 
They accused Peter. Peter had to defend himself. It goes down and he starts, um, we'll go to verse 33. So I sent you immediately, this is Cornelius explaining, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. Did he ever say Jesus? Did he ever say Lord, Jehovah, as a proselyte would? God, the term is God, God, God. It's always God because he is not a proselyte. He doesn't know who the Lord is. He doesn't know Jesus is, okay? He is a Gentile that just happens to pray to God. He knows he's out there. Acts chapter 17 kind of stuff there. Okay, then, uh, you know, to the unknown God, that's what I was referring to. Okay, everybody knows that there is a God out there that is the ultimate creator. Even in the book of Jonah, we saw that. They have their lesser gods, but they all wanted to call on the one God when they were in real straits. So everybody has that knowledge in them. They may believe in lesser gods, but everybody believes that there is a final God. They may deny it, but it is ingrained in them somewhere. Hey, okay. Just, just yes. get a, uh, an atheist in a car with you and ride off a cliff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> oh, God! That's right. First thing they say. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That doesn't mean that works saves you, but God will accept them knowing the heart of the person, okay, and leading them to Christ, okay? The word, okay, the word here, logon, it's in the accusative case, which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then he says in verse 37, that word you know, the word there is rima, okay, you know is emphatic, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in Israel, of the Jews, and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. So now Cornelius has heard of the death, he's heard of the burial, and he's heard of the resurrection of Jesus, right? That is the gospel. He's heard of that message, okay? Not to all people. God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him. And after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Verse 44, here it is. While Peter was still speaking these words, Peter to Cornelius speaking the gospel, speaking gospel did he say repent no nope. is the word repent there no he gave them the logon and the rima it was received the speaking of the gospel okay while peter was still speaking these words the holy spirit fell upon all who heard the word speaking the gospel heard the word meaning received it the word heard there means received they heard they applied right. some people can hear and not hear some people hear and hear right I hear you the, yeah i hear you okay speaking the gospel they heard and guess what happened down comes the holy spirit okay so here's a question for you once again anything about repentance all right anything about baptism no anything about laying on of hands anything no 
it says Peter to Cornelius, he's speaking the gospel, they heard, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Okay, now, let me ask you something. Not you guys. Nobody here that's been in this class before. I'm talking to the people online. What is the common element here? In here. Maybe you don't remember. Told us that the yeah, same thing. Right. Okay. Well, okay. Anybody online, do you know what the common element is here? What is the common element? And before you answer, don't answer that yet. Which one of these do we use as prescriptive for the church age? Right? Is it this one? Is it this one? Or is it this one? Which one tells us how we are to be baptized? How are we to receive the Holy Spirit? How are we to have hands laid on us? Which one? Which one do we use for our theology? Because people love to pick and choose all kinds of stuff out of here. But there is an answer. Where do we go in one of these three accounts to determine none of them? That's right. He's got a big zero over there. The answer is none of them. This is a descriptive passage. The book of Acts is describing three different things for a very particular reason. There is a very particular reason. Now I want to ask you again, because I asked you which one you use, and Burke interrupted, and he said none. So which, what is the common element between the three of these? Okay. None of you have answered. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm thoroughly embarrassed. Burke, what is the common element? That's right. The common element is this person right here. That is the, uh, the only common element of all three of them is the person Peter. Without Peter, we would have no idea what was going on here. But Peter was at all three of them for a very specific reason, because he was the apostle to the Jews, to the circumcision. Okay, He was the one that confirmed the process for each one of them to say, yes, this is valid. And that's why he could, in his, what is it, first epistle or second epistle, he could validate that Paul's writings were correct. Because what did Jesus say to Peter? I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. The keys are, have unlocked the door. The door is unlocked. The kingdom is unlocked because Jew, Jew, Gentile, and Gentile have all now been shown that they can be accepted by God. Okay, it's done. There's no apostolic succession in the Pope. There is no need for any of that type of theology. There's also no way, no way that we can take this in the Gentile-led church age and apply it to our theology. We cannot. When we do, we err. And there's no way beyond no way that we can do this one. Because guess what? Peter is dead. He's not there to lay his hands on any one of us, right? That obviously can't be done. And this one here, doesn't happen the way that it happened in the book of uh, Acts chapter 10, because afterward they started speaking immediately with tongues, right? Yeah. yeah. It was a sign to the Jews. Jews demand a sign. Greeks oh. seek after wisdom. I preach Christ crucified. The message is sufficient, according to Paul. Who is it that we get our doctrine for the church age from? Paul. Paul. We don't get it from the book of Acts. We... we all scripture is God-breathed. All is useful and profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for training the man of uh, in righteousness, man of God in righteousness, 2, 2 Timothy 3.16. I know I just butchered it. But anyway, all of it is useful and profitable, but not all of it applies to the in the same way at all times. Okay? This is a descriptive account showing us what happened in three different times of redemptive history 
all very close to each other, but for a specific reason. Now, if you went through the book of Acts, you would understand why these are included, where they're included, and all of that, because we went through all the details. But the key element here is that not one of these matches our current day reception of the Holy Spirit, nor does it match our theology on water baptism. Because when did Cornelius's house get baptized? Well, we haven't even read it yet, have we? Okay, wait, before we go on, when did the Jews get baptized? After repenting and believing, right? Okay, when did the uh, Samaritans get baptized? All right, they had come, they prayed for the Holy Spirit, they had not yet believed on them. They were baptized in 8.12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Christ Jesus, both men and women were baptized. I skipped that part, but they had it preached to them. They already believed. We'll put that up here. They believed the word, and they were baptized and baptized. Sorry, I left this part out. I just overskipped it. They were believed and were baptized, and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. Peter comes, all right, and then he says, there's a faith in these people. They've already believed and been baptized. He lays his hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. They did not receive the Holy Spirit until Peter showed up. These people received the Holy Spirit, and then they got baptized. After this happened, they were baptized. Okay, I'm sorry I skipped that during the presentation, but it didn't affect the questions that nobody answered correctly. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, but you see, you can't use any of them for your theology because not one of them matches the order that we believe now. Paul says in the Bible that we listen to the word, we hear the word, we believe, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That is our baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we go and get baptized as an outward confirmation of the inward change. That was what Paul was writing about in verses 6-3 and 6-4 of the book of Romans. So either we believe Paul and we use him as our doctrine, or we use what? You tell me. Which one do we use? Do we have to repent and then be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit? Or do we believe and be baptized and then have somebody lay their hands on us who's dead 2,000 years and receive the Holy Spirit? Or do we listen to the message, receive the Holy Spirit, start speaking in tongues, and then get baptized? None of them. We cannot use the book of Acts as a descriptive book. If we do that, we will error in our theology every single time. There are a couple of descriptive passages in Acts, and even those are later uh, explained in more detail by Paul. Like, um, uh, what's that? Prescriptive. Yeah, pre- uh, whatever I said. Yeah, there, there are few prescriptive passages in Acts. 4.12. But 4.12. Yeah, th- uh, 4.12. What is that? Go ahead. Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given by men which must be saved. That's right. That's a prescriptive passage. It's prescribing something. That is. And that is, as I said later, that will be further defined by Paul. He will explain what that means in great detail. He's been doing it all the way through the book of Romans so far, and he will continue to do so. So you can see, this is just a very small example of what we talked about for three years in the book of Acts. And we went through this a couple of times, but the importance of understanding that if you use Acts chapter 2 for your theology, the only one that is going to suffer is you and anybody that is trained by you, okay? You cannot take the book of Acts and apply it in a prescriptive manner with a very few exceptions, which are always further refined by Paul, always, okay? The, once again, we'll really quickly go through this. Acts begins in Jerusalem. It begins with Peter. It begins... Um, 
let's see here, Peter, Jerusalem, and um, uh, there's one more I'm missing, and it ends in uh, uh, Peter, Jerusalem, it ends with Paul in Rome, and uh, anyway, the, the change is made in the book of Acts from 1 through 12, and then 13 through 28. It is God showing us why he is doing certain things, and none of this kind of stuff ever occurs after Acts chapter 13 when Paul is introduced. Why? Because Peter is the one that had to validate that. He was the circumcision, he was the apostle to the circumcision. He was the apostle to the Jews. And that is still important to this day because it is the Jews who will be the focus after the rapture of the church. Starting, right? in, Hebrews. Starting in Hebrews, James, Peter, but Peter is the key there because he was the one there at the beginning. His words are going to be the one that validate as I said, the book of uh, Hebrews, which was certainly written by Paul, which he refers to. And uh, anyway, it also validates Paul's writings because he says these are taken out of context by people. They're things hard to understand. Well, he is validating that so that when the Jews do come to Christ, they will say, we've got to get back and read Paul because Paul is the one that gave the proper doctrine all along, which has been rejected by these people. And it's still rejected by most of the church today. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means that they have bad doctrine. It just means that they're going through life in some type of bondage, either bondage of tithe. I'm going to put it in a prophecy update, not this Sunday. I'll do it next week. But I'm not even going to talk about it now. Oh, but come on. Okay. It, it, it is just, it is so annoying to read this thing. Well-intentioned, great heart on this guy, but I feel like writing him an email, Okay. He's a guy that signed a contract for an NFL thing, yeah. right? Millions of dollars. And he says, my first obligation is to pay my tithes to the church. And I thought, you know, one, that's supposed to be between you and the Lord. And two, it's, it, it, tithing isn't even required in the New Testament. And three, if you knew what tithes really were, you'd feel like gypped by the pastor that told you you have to give him 10% because it's not 10%. It's 10% every three years. But you know what I'm saying? That is the problem with not handing, handling the Bible properly and not going in context. When you take something out of context, when you teach it out of context, somebody is going to be in bondage. And that guy is in a or type of bondage. Away. Or pushed away. Absolutely, because there are people that are going to hear him say that and they're going to say, well, I don't want to give up 10% of my money. I only make $30,000 a year. He makes billions of dollars and all he does is throw a football, right? Somebody is always going to be harmed by bad doctrine. Always. Yeah. We have to be careful with stuff like this, and we have to make sure that it is in context and it right. is applied properly. We can, No, we don't have time for one more verse. Um, what we can do is, um, have we got any one quick question or comment? Go ahead. Peter said, or, yeah, Peter said about Paul's that it was things hard to be understood as they do the rest of the scriptures. As they do with the rest of the scriptures. scriptures. He, called scriptures. he called Paul's writings, and what, what book is that? That's Second Peter. Second Peter. Okay, he calls Paul's writings scripture. Yes. They twist his writings as they do with the rest of scripture. He said, what Paul is writing is authoritative. It is on the same level as the rest of the Bible. And guess what? It really applies during the Gentile-led church age. And they are going to need to read the words of Peter to understand that we've got to go back and now read Paul, because Paul is the enemy of the whole world. He's the enemy of Jew. He's the en enemy of Gentile. Okay. Everybody, you know, it's so sad because he his writings are so clear. They're so concise. 2 Peter 3.16. That's right. I was... Uh, Thank you. I was at a memorial service at Unity. You, oh. Right. And, and the pastor got up and he said, he goes, Paul, 
He said a few good things, but there's a lot of things he said that I just don't believe in. <laughs> oh gosh. I was I was in the last pew of their church. And there were like six people on this side, six people on that side, and you know, my my leg is not the best. I literally jumped over the pew oh, and, my God. and walked out. Oh. Until they got done listening to this nonsense. Uh, no, absolutely like, you know, not. You take out what we've already shown. Remember I told told you if we take out Peter I'm sorry, Paul. Then we have to take out Luke. If we take out Luke, then we have to take out Mark and uh, uh, Matthew. If we take them out, then we have to take out the books of Peter. Once you take out anything, everything else falls apart. Never pull the thread. You pull the thread, and it all unwinds. So that guy, I feel bad for people like that. But we'll go ahead and close three minutes early today. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the uh, class tonight. Even though it's a small class, and I know that there are people that are probably hemmed in with something because they're not here, and we would pray for them. And we certainly pray for Paul because I've emailed him twice this week. Lord, haven't heard from him. I'm sure he's struggling and we would uh, just pray that he would be okay and uh, that you would give him the strength back in his body so that he could, uh, uh, you know, just be content once again to walk around and to uh, just have the, the joy of a healthy body. And we also pray for Bob who has been having a problem lately with his... Um, Pacemaker. Pacemaker, thank you. And uh, we would pray that that would be resolved because that's got to be very stressful for him. And Lord, you know, every other person out there that's going through some type of trial and trouble, we would pray that you would be with them and help them to uh, uh, just, you know, just be able to endure this, this difficult life until you call us home, either through death or through the rapture. And uh, we would hope for the latter and we would hope for it soon. But, Lord, we thank you for this class tonight. We thank you that you are with us, and we just ask that you bless each person with us today in the week ahead and take good care of them. And we love you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's see here. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. You know what? If, uh, if you are online, before I have us wave goodbye, if you're online and you know somebody that is stuck in one of these things where you have to do this in order to be saved, be baptized, be send them this, this video and just see what they think about it. You know, they may, most people are set in their theology and they're just going to reject what they hear anyway if they don't believe it. But the answer is so crystal clear here. If you just follow through very carefully and methodically with the book of Acts, it shows you that none of these can be correct. Not one of them can be correct because they all contradict each other because they're intended for different people at different times. They don't contradict in scripture. They contradict with each other because they have different purposes, okay? And if we try to apply any one of them, we will have bad theology. Anyway, um, there you go. And uh, let me go ahead and back up the camera and we'll say goodbye to everybody. And next week we may, couldn't be tonight because I didn't get an answer to something or I didn't read the answer until, uh, anyway, we'll probably have pizza next week. And I'll tell you about that later. Let's see here, we're gonna go to break. <laughs> Not many people waving hands good night, but uh, anyway, here we go. We love you. Have a wonderful evening and take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, we got that off, and I got to find I, I think Sergio's probably already asleep, but he put a new lens on the camera, and yeah, he was going to see if it worked, and he was going to let me know. And uh, Yeah, it's, it's a clip-on lens. And it's probably, he, he didn't seem happy with it once we got it set up. He's probably going to send it back and just get a new camera, but we'll see. And, uh, uh, I gotta wait for this stuff. Maybe I can just. Okay, that's off. Good, I got that.